Why don't you guys grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Um, if you're new here, I want to welcome you guys. My name is Brian, one of the pastors. And typically on Sunday mornings, we take books of the Bible and we teach through them. And uh, we are actually starting a brand new series as of today. So you get the fortune of being able to be here at the launch of something great and new. Not because it's anything I said, but because of Jesus. It's actually called the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because, one, it was on a mountaintop. Two, it was Jesus's sermon. So what we're going to be looking at today is really going to be Jesus talking, and then we're going to be looking at the bigger picture of what he's doing, what he's trying to communicate. So to sort of launch this whole series off, what I want to do in terms of moving into the Sermon on the Mount and considering what it's all about, I want to read um, a little passage of scripture, actually beginning at chapter 4, uh, at around verse 23. What I'd like to do is, how about we have all of us stand up, and we're going to read this little passage of scripture, Matthew chapter 4. If you guys don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles in the back of the church. Please feel free to grab one. We are a church that believes in needing Bibles. We love you if you forgot it. If you keep forgetting it, we still love you. But we want you to repent. All right, verse 23. Verse 23. The story basically is this. Jesus is going around all around the region of the Galilee, which is a place in Israel, just, uh, I don't know, 60 or so miles away from Jerusalem to the north, and basically began a ministry, public ministry. He was about 30 years old, somewhere around there, and he went around all around this region preaching about God and healing people. And this is where we're picking it up. It says in verse 23, And then he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming, uh, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various disease and pains, and those who were oppressed by demons and epileptics, and paral- those who were uh, paralyzed or paralytics. And he healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from the beyond the Jordan, which is basically another way of saying way out in the desert people came in to hear Jesus preach. Verse 1 of chapter 5, it says this, Jesus then seeing the crowds, he went up to a mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you right now, we ask that you would open our eyes. Help us to see these things. Help us to understand the message that you spoke. God, give us insight, give us light, 
Lord, we pray this morning that we would not just simply have our minds filled with information, but we pray ultimately it would be about transformation, that you would change us, that this revelation that comes from you into our hearts, into this room, into our lives, would break through, as Matthew said earlier, like light on a dark valley, like the sun rising over darkness. God, I pray that that would be the way it impacts us and changes us and affects us. So we give this morning, we ask, Father, for your name to be exalted and that you would help lead us into your joy, into your happiness, into your blessedness, we pray. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. All right, why don't you guys all grab a seat. Here's what I want to do before we jump in. So really what's happening here is Jesus starts this ongoing, it's the longest sort of ongoing message that Jesus speaks, communicates. It's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount and embodies, uh, you know, chapter 5, 6, and 7. So three whole chapters, it encompasses this really big, massive body of information, of wisdom, of insight that Jesus himself speaks on. Now, when you look at it, you realize there are a lot of subjects that are actually covered, anything from lust to marriage, to how you spend your money, to how you deal with your anxieties, to how whether or not you love your neighbors, uh, how you treat people that treat you incorrectly or improperly, how you deal with people. Really, the whole sermon embodies a series of topics. Jesus has really a lot to say. But what I want to say about the bigger picture of what's happening is Jesus begins this ministry and everybody loves Jesus. All right, not everybody. There's a bunch of people that don't like him. But Jesus is a guy that people are really impacted by. People are moved by the things that Jesus has to say. I mean, that's the whole point that Matthew states, that people came all the way as far as the, the eastern side of the Jordan. All right? I mean, if you look at a map today and you look on the east side of the Jordan River... It's the current uh, country of Jordan itself. It's just desert, all right? There's nothing there. It's just sand and a few cactuses, all right? Cacti. Cactuses is not correct. I think it's cacti, right? Anyways, cacti. And that's all it is, is desert. So basically, Matthew's trying to say people came from all around, even all the way from the desert, just to hear Jesus speak. Just to be a part of the work and the ministry and the things that he's doing. Nobody up until this point had ever really seen or heard or experienced anybody quite like Jesus had, is, and was before. They'd, ne- they'd never known of anybody quite like this. I mean, yes, they had John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a significant ministry. But nobody was quite like Jesus. I mean, people were bringing those that were sick, those that needed healing, and Jesus healed them. But what's going on here is a bigger picture of what's taking place throughout the bigger theme or sort of meta-narrative of the book of Matthew. And it's this concept of the kingdom of God. So before I jump in, what I want to do is I want to look at basically three uh, statements or three concepts that are going to arise within the passage that we're going to look at today and over the next few weeks and months and whatnot to come but also sort of arise in a larger theme of Matthew. So the first thing I want you to take a look at, I think we have a slide somewhere that says this, that one of the first things I want for us to see is really this concept of blessed. Because as we look at the uh, Beatitudes, as we had just read, they're called the Beatitudes because the word beatus in Latin literally means blessed or happy. But what I want to try to do is understand what the word blessed means. It's sort of a, it can be in kind of an ambiguous type of a term. Like, 
not too many of us use the word blessed. And when we do, I'm not sure if it always carries over into the same concept of the way it has within the Bible or the way it's used within the New Testament in particular. So the concept of blessed or the theme of blessed or the, con- the, the, the word that's being used here is the actual Greek word makarios. And uh, in classic literature, it was used in really kind of this larger idea of being happy, being satisfied, being fulfilled. In the Bible, it really carries sort of a bigger theme or concept behind it. And it's really the idea, is, as uh, one guy put it, it's really having the approval of God. It's really finding yourself in a relationship with God in which you have his approval. Now, you can flip that around and say, is everybody who's happy have the approval of God? No. Not everybody who's happy has the approval of God. But everybody who has the approval of God is happy, is blessed, is full of joy. That's the concept. That's the picture. Uh, The Old Testament idea would be, uh, happy is the man whose God is the Lord. That's kind of a beatitude. Happy is the man, or happy is the nation, or happy is the family, or happy is the person whose God is not money, whose God is not power, whose God is not whatever, but whose God is actually the Lord, the Creator God. So that's the idea of blessed. The second phrase that's going to come up oftentimes is the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. I want to make sure that we understand this. There are several sort of synonymous terms that are used throughout the New Testament that really kind of all mean the same thing. Here's a couple of them. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, heaven. Those three words, for for example, are really all saying the same thing. In our modern day concept, we think of heaven oftentimes or limit the concept of heaven to just simply some place that we will go to when we die. Now, there's three that. I think the Bible has teachings that communicates that, but that's not, it's, it, that's not the concept of heaven in its entirety. If all we think about heaven in terms of a place that you're going to go when you die, then we sort of miss the bigger picture. Really, we're taking away from the Bible, all right? If I can just try to put it that way, if the way that we only limit the concept of heaven is being a place or a noun, some spot that we go to when we die, when we pass away, when we flatline, then really what we've done is we've pulled away from the bigger picture that the Bible wants to present about this larger concept. All right, the concept of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, good Jews didn't like to say the word of God, so this is probably why they chose to say the word kingdom of heaven, as it was another way of indicating the place or the zone where God, who nobody wants to pronounce his name, uh, resided or lived and exercised domain. Uh, good Jews were very careful to not want to take the name of the Lord in vain. So they didn't want to use the name of God in sort of vain or repetitious type ways. So therefore, they probably supplemented the concept of um, God for heaven. But it means the same thing. Here's the, sort of the idea behind the kingdom of heaven. The concept of heaven or the concept of the kingdom of heaven is really this, it, it's born from the concept of the kingdom of God. God has authority and sovereignty or leadership or rulership over a zone, over an area. And that area that God has exercised sovereignty and authority and power over is his kingdom. All right? Does that make sense, guys? You understand that? That's his kingdom. That's the concept. Wherever God has authority or power is safe to say, That's kingdom. That's the zone. That's the spot. 
It's the kingdom of God. So how do we get the concept of heaven? All right. You got to think like a Jew 2,000 years ago, living in a tent, sitting outside at night, roasting some tri-tip by the fire, um, and, and eating really good flatbread, and you're smelling the coals of the fire, and you look up in the middle of the night. Is this thing working? Am I bumping it? All right. Um, and in the, late at night, let's say, you look up to the stars, and you, all you see is this canopy of like, you know, lights, diamonds, as far as the eye can see, as far as you look up, you see this canopy way out there. And you're like, wow, God, your domain goes all the way out there. All the way out there. Hence the concept of the heavens. Okay? So when we talk about heaven as being like heaven, ah, place you go to when you die, it's way out there. That's where we get the concept from. It's not the idea that heaven is a spot that's way, way out there. It is that, but it's way more than that. It's the bigger concept that God authority and his sovereignty and his reign and his justice and his goodness permeates everywhere even way out there okay does that make sense so when we talk about the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of god or heaven really what we're talking about is this concept of god's rulership being everywhere here but even to the farthest place you can ever imagine. Okay? I'll prove this one last example. Jesus in the prayer, uh, the Lord's Prayer commonly known, he says this, and let your kingdom come on earth just like it is in heaven. Okay? The point of that prayer is God, let your reign, let your authority, as Jesus is teaching his disciples. I want you guys to pray. When you pray like this, pray and ask God to bring his authority, his reign, his sovereignty, his justice, righteousness, peace to this earth, just like it is in the rest of creation. Okay? That's the idea. So it's important to understand sort of this idea of kingdom of heaven. There's one other thing I think it's important to note about the concept of kingdom of heaven. When Jesus comes and he comes preaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven, as he did earlier in chapter 4, the latter part of chapter 4, one thing you need to understand when you hear the phrase kingdom of heaven, um, in today's culture, we don't really think much of kingdom of heaven being sort of charged with emotion. But in Jesus' day, the phrase kingdom of heaven was very emotionally charged. Because really the bigger concept behind the kingdom of heaven, it spelled out in every person that heard it, one word. All right, anybody want to take a guess as to what that one word, kingdom of heaven, now, spells out? Any word comes to mind? Revolution. Revolution. All right, if you're Roman and you hear some guy walking around saying, there's another kingdom and it's here and I'm leading it. I'm calling for people to join. Your ears perk up and you freak out. If you had a cell phone, you'd call Caesar. All right? What happens is you immediately begin to think, trouble, trouble. Because we have an opposing rival kingdom coming on the radar screen. This isn't good. That's what you think. Right? In fact, this is sort of uh, complementary to the 
main idea in which the way the apostles understood the kingdom. I'll give an example. Later on towards the end of Jesus' life, the disciples began to fight more and more. The closer Jesus got to Jerusalem, why? Why did they fight more the closer they got to Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem's the, the head. It's sort of like the cornerstone of everything religious and everything civil and everything sort of in terms of uh, kingdom. And the region, uh, Jerusalem's the place where every Jewish king reigned. So the closer they got to Jerusalem, the more the apostles began to bicker and fight. What did they fight about? They used to fight about stuff like this. You know, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can I be secretary of state? Can I be the vice president? Can I be on your right hand? Can I be your advisor? Can I be a part of your board? Can I be, you know, a leader? And they would fight over this stuff. And really, again, it shows us how much they did not understand this revolution. Was Jesus bringing about a revolution? Yes. But it was not the type of revolution that oftentimes people would think about. It was a revolution that was against bigger forces, bigger enemies, larger enemies that were sort of behind the scenes, causing even bigger problems in terms of a global and cosmic sense. All right? Not just global, meaning this sphere that we live on, the earth, but in a cosmic sense, because Paul's going to extend the depth of sin as to not just simply being in our humanity, but the curse goes all the way to all of creation. And one day, part of God's redemption and reclamation is going to extend throughout the entire universe. Now, what's that going to look like? I have no clue, but that seems to be what the Bible talks about. So here's what's happening. Kingdom of heaven, it's sort of about a revolution. Jesus is talking about this, and he's going around communicating this to the people. Now, if you're somebody and you hear this concept, you know, the kingdom of heaven's coming. It's good news. I want you to pause and just think about this for a second. If, if you are a part of a society or a group of people, and you're being governed and ruled by Roman people who don't like you, they, 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 they tax you like crazy, all right? Everywhere you look, you've got another sort of group of guards with swords on. They've got armor all over themselves. Every time you look at a guy like that, you're always reminded, same thing, don't mess with Rome. Don't mess with Rome. You mess with Rome, you'll die. Um, Romans, the way the Romans exercised justice, their type of justice was, if you, if you don't like us, then we kill you. All right? There's no compromise. If you cross us, if you try to bring about revolution that's not part of the Roman system, we hang you. That's why Jesus partly died, aside from several other things, including our own redemption. But the point that I want to make is this, is that when the concept of the kingdom of God was proclaimed and mentioned, Matthew tells us that's the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom. The word gospel literally means good news. That the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God is here. That's really good news. So if you're living in a culture, in a society, you're part of a group of people that are suppressed, right? Um, people have uh, treated you unjustly. They've not dealt righteously with you. You can't get a fair trial. Let's say if you get arrested and you go into prison and then you find your day in court and you go to court and everybody's against you and you're like, I'm innocent. I haven't done anything wrong. I can't even get a fair trial here. When you hear a statement like, good news, 
God who embodies righteousness, justice, peace, is coming. I want you to feel that. If you are a slave and you are in bondage, and the message that God, who has the keys to release you from your slavery, is coming. It's really good news. It's really good news. Now, here's the flip side of it. If you're somebody that abuses the system, that treats people unjustly, that rather than demonstrating love and kindness and, you know, mercy, and when somebody treats you wrong, you treat them even worse, if, if that's you, right, when you hear the concept, God's coming, are you happy or are you freaked out, all right? You soil your pants, that's what happens. You get really freaked out because you, it's over for me. I'm dead. I, who can stand before a holy God? That's the idea. I cannot stand before God if he's coming because I'm bad. I've abused the system. I've treated people unjustly. I've been unrighteous in my lifestyle. I've not spoken the way properly that I should. I've not treated people the way that I, I knew I should. And the announcement of God coming really scares people. See, here's the thing. Even amongst those people that are oppressed, even the worst of the oppressed people, there's this thing about all humanity, that even those that are oppressed tend to oppress others. We think of people that are on the lowest part of the food chain, and we think, ah, they're innocent. This is the part of the the heavy stuff that we've got to come to grips with is that the, the depth of depravity, of sinfulness, goes so deep that even those that are the most oppressed, that would be the most glad to cry out for someone, a king, to come and release them, have their own injustices in their own lives and their own sinfulness in their own lives. But we live in a way where we just deny that, don't we? Or some people actually come to grips with that and they feel the weight of that, and they cry out to God and say, God, I'm going to need a help. So here's what happens. Here's what takes place. In the announcement of the gospel of the kingdom, really what he's basically saying is I'm coming to bring about an awareness of a new way, a new way to have a relationship with God. This is Matthew's whole bigger theme throughout the whole book, is it's about a new covenant. You know, we talk about the New Testament. The word New Testament literally means new covenant. And it's this bigger, broader concept or theme in which the way God is not working upon the planet and within his fallen creation is by a new way as opposed to the old way. Meaning, God is not working through the old means of grace, really, which was the law. And it was a means of grace, meaning God graciously, lovingly uh, implementing himself through law to the people. Um, but God is now moving in a different way through his son. Here, here's an example. In the book of Deuteronomy, we're given sort of this picture, the idea of the old covenant. The old covenant was basically when something like this. What happens were the children of Israel, they were in Egypt. They end up being set free or being let out of Egypt. As they come out of Egypt, one of the very first things they find themselves confronted with is the Red Sea. They go through the Red Sea to freedom. Now, after the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness, Right? After the wilderness, we're told that they are basically brought up to a mountain, Mount Sinai. What happens at Mount Sinai? At Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with them. Basically, what God says, I'm going to set the terms of relationship that I want to have with you. 
The terms of the relationship are this. Here's the law. Here's the Ten Commandments. Uh, there are blessings and there are curses attached to this. God says, follow them, live them. We will be in communion. We will be in community with each other. We will have relationship with one another. And if you forsake them, God says there'll be, there'll be consequences to that. So here's what happens. Now, Matthew is so in tune and so in touch with this larger theme of God's covenant. And what Matthew's doing is he's really trying to parallel the old covenant to the new covenant. So check this out, all right? So here's, if you want, you can go back real quick and take a look at this. In Matthew chapter 2, he talks about Jesus, and he sort of gives a little bit of the background about Jesus' childbirth, you know, how he is born, and sort of his childhood. One of the very first things that Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 2 is that Jesus ends up coming out of where? Egypt. Okay, so check this out. Chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, Jesus comes in contact with John the Baptist. She says, I got to be baptized. And John's like, no, you're not going to be baptized. He's like, I'm going to be baptized. I got to be baptized. Jesus goes into the water, right? After the water, Jesus comes out of the baptism. The next chapter, chapter four, where does Jesus go? He goes out to the wilderness. For how long? 40 days. Why? Because he's acting out the old covenant, but he's demonstrating he is the new covenant to come as God. To set forth a new direction. To set forth a new way to interact and relate with God. So Jesus comes out of Egypt, goes through the water, goes to the wilderness. Matthew chapter 5 opens with these words. So he came to a mountain, sat down, and began to teach. It totally parallels the Old Testament covenant of the people of Israel and the relationship that God forged with them that was consequently broken Matthew's trying to say, look, God is setting out a new covenant, a new way to have a relationship with God, a new way to be in covenant, to be in sort of this relationship that, with God that God wants to bring about. How does this come about? Well, this brings us to the third word. I'm going to move on from this real fast, is the word repent. This is the very first thing that Jesus says in John chapter four, or Matthew chapter 4. Uh, it's one of the very first things that Jesus preaches at about verse 17. It says this, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the whole question is this. In coming into, in coming into the reality of the understanding of the kingdom of God is here, now, working, God's sovereignty, God's plan, God's domain is coming in contact with present state humanity. How should we react? Jesus' word is this, repent. Change your ways. Sometimes people misunderstand the concept of repent as just simply being feel bad, right? Sometimes people think of repentance, like I'm repentant because I feel really bad. Well, you know, you can actually feel really bad and not be repentant. If you go into a prison, uh, and I've done prison ministry before, I know, I'm speaking from experience, not from the inside, I've actually never been to jail, but um, from actually going inside as an outsider. And, and one of the things that's really unique to me, one of, the, one of the most amazing experiences, all right? I saw, I saw Shawshank Redemption. It's true. There are no guilty people in prison. They're all innocent. It's shocking. It's just shock. Everybody's innocent. And so here's the idea that I think what's, what's, what's taken place is that people who are repentant don't just feel bad. They do something about it. Jesus is saying, look, when you come in 
reality with the concept that God's kingdom, God's domain, God's power, God's authority is here now. You're to repent. Change your way. Change your course of life. Change the direction that you've been going. The way that you've been living for yourself, the way that you've been living that is sort of reminiscent of injustice. What do I mean by that? I'll just give you an example of this because this runs so deep because we can be thinking about in our minds. Here's the problem is we tend to categorize sins in certain ways and we think certain sins are far worse than other sins. But the reality is that all of us to just demonstrate how deep this runs into every one of us. If you're somebody that something wrong was done against you and your way of dealing with that wrong was to just harden your heart and become bitter... That just is an evidence of the reflection of how deep the sin nature is inside of us. That just shows how deeply affected we are. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to start a new revolution. And the revolution is not going to be like the old revolution. The old revolution was this. He comes and he speaks to those that were to be bearers of light. And he basically says, insist as light bearers to constantly live in darkness and operate in darkness, then the darkness will overtake you. If you, as my bearers of peace, choose to live in anger and in war, then war will one day destroy you. If you who are to be people that reflect and mirror my love and my forgiveness, choose to consistently hate and show unforgiveness, it will keep coming back to you. It will be like this endless cycle. Like these old tribal nations of people constantly fighting with each other over and over and over again. Nothing will change until somebody changes. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to a revolution of change. It's not going to come by way of sword. It's not going to come by bigger muscles, stronger flexes, more power more might, it's going to come from a heart that's changed. So here's what he's going to say. So he speaks to these people as he announces the kingdom. And the very first thing he says to them, he says, blessed in verse uh, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're somebody that recognizes inside your own heart your poverty. I mean, it's just like you realize, like, I, I just don't have what it takes. I, I realize that I, I deserve justice from God. I've failed. I can't. I, just, justice has not been given to me. I feel broken. I can't get a fair trial. Nothing seems right. Nothing seems fair. And you realize, like, this is, I have no place to go. There's nothing I can offer. There's no amount of money that I can you know, afford to pay off somebody, to bribe somebody according to the old system of uh, filthy justice. It's like when you realize, I don't have anything. I'm just bankrupt. You're at a place where what Jesus is saying, you're blessed. You're happy. Blessed are you when you realize you're poor in spirit. For the kingdom of God is for people just like you. That's who it's for. The flip side is when you begin to, when you, when you look at your life and you think, I don't need God. I got it all together. That's the illusion that we all live under. All right? 
We live under this illusion that we think somehow by our own might, by our own power, by our own strength, with the amount of money that we have in our wallets and the amount of money we've got tied up in investments, the size of house that we have, how big a car we have, how many boats we own, how big and how far our authority, our power, our might extends. We think somehow, some way, I've got to trick up my sleeve somewhere to make it all work out good. Jesus says, you're not blessed. You're just bending the system to work towards you. Really? You're just kicking up the flames of hell higher and higher and higher. And one day, the bottom will give out and you'll be burnt. But Jesus on the flip side says, those who are happy are those who just recognize they're impoverished in spirit. They've got nothing to give. One of the best examples of this in the New Testament from Jesus' own teaching. I love this story. It's like Jesus says, you know, two people go to synagogue and they worship. And he was always sort of illustrating these truths by these amazing stories. There's two people that go to synagogue and worship. One's a tax collector and one's a Pharisee. All right? In that culture, the phrase, the word tax collector would immediately drum up all this like intense emotion. People would cringe like tax collector. <laughs> At church? Uh-uh. Not cool. All right? Tax collector's bad. Like, everybody would freak out who's hearing that story and just think, that's not good. Tax collectors shouldn't be at church. All right? It'd be like, in today's culture, Jesus may be saying, two people went to church. One was a pedophiler. Everybody knew it. His face is on every, you know, pole around San Luis Obispo. He lives in this neighborhood. Everybody knows what he's done because his face has been up on the news all the time. He's sitting at church. And the other dude that comes in the church is an elder, he's a pastor, he's a leader, he's been a Christian for 35 years, he knows the Bible better than anybody else, and Jesus says, the one guy who's a pedophile, during worship, he couldn't even sing the songs, he just couldn't even look up, he couldn't stop weeping, he couldn't stop crying, the whole time the pastor preached, taught, he just couldn't stop sobbing, all he could think about was the fact that he just shouldn't even be there because he sinned against God to the point it gets to sort of a crescendo where he hits his own chest and he says, woe is me. I just don't even deserve to be here. And Jesus says, the other guy, the elder, looks at the guy who's weeping and he looks up to heaven and says, God, I thank you that I got a new King James Bible and I thank you that it's like genuine leather, not bonded like other sinners. And God, I thank you that I've got nice clothes and my hair's parted properly and I got a good job and I'm blessed. I got lots of kids and they all love Jesus and they know how to quote the entire King James Bible as well. God, I just thank you. I'm nothing like that horrible pedophile over there who just keeps crying and he smells. All right. You know that story? Jesus basically says, you want to know which guy was made right with God? The pedophile. That's his point. The point is the one who is broken of spirit, impoverished, just wrecking. I don't have anything to offer God. I shouldn't even be here. Jesus says, that's the one who God receives. All right? This turns the whole structure on its head. Doesn't it? Because this is how we oftentimes think. We think, oh, the people that are right with God are the ones that look good, they drive the fancy car, 
tinted windows, they've got fancy houses, they've got spinners on their wheels, they've got big fat, you know, bases in their trunk, and they're just like thumping down the street, and everybody looks at them like, isn't that the guy, you know, he's the spiritual one, right? He's the one that knows all the scriptures, and he loves Jesus. He's the one that everybody wants to go to, because he's spiritual, right? Jesus is actually sometimes the people that are closest to God are the ones that are most undeserving, and they feel it. That's what he means by broken in spirit, all right? The next thing that he goes on to say in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. I want to say something real quick here before I keep going on. Um, some of the guys I've studied and some of the books I've read and studying for this and preparing for this, um, they've actually devoted like one whole message, if not maybe a couple messages, to each beatitude, all right? Uh, one of my favorite guys, a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I've loved Martin Lloyd-Jones since I first became a Christian. I've always listened to him. He's just one of my favorite guys. And uh, he's got volumes on, like, each verse, all right? And, you know, here I am, like, skimming through this very quickly. So I realize there's going to be a lot of content that could be spoken about this. Some of you might be like, oh, he could have quoted this verse. Why didn't he? Time, all right? Time. And the reality is, if you study that, great, God bless you, that's awesome. We, I, I want to try to present a bigger picture overview of this, and I realize because of that we're not able to go super in-depth into all this, but what we're going to see next as Jesus continues to talk, it says, blessed are the poor, in, or it says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Uh, the word there, pentheo, means to basically feel this lament um, that idea is to just have this concept of being hurt, of feeling pain, feeling sorrow. And what's going on here is these are people that have just been overwhelmed by a sense of mourning. Now, I don't think this is necessarily just relegated to those that look at their spiritual bankruptcy and cry. In other words, they just don't, it's not simply looking at myself and saying, I feel really bad I'm really bombed. I'm really discomforted because my life's such a mess. It, it definitely involves that, but I think it's even more than that. It's even a larger picture. Those who mourn because they just feel the weight of brokenness that's all around them. They, they feel the weight of things that are broken. They feel the weight of either being defiled by sinful activity around them or maybe you're somebody that has had past relationships with somebody and you have felt defiled in your own life. And maybe rather than dealing with that with God, you just sort of push those feelings deep down. And every once in a while they, they come out and you feel like mourning. You feel sad. You feel broken. You feel just, just really deeply like there's an ache somewhere very deep down inside. I think that's the idea that he's communicating. In any way you want to look at it, the mourning really arises out of sin. Sin that either, A, you've committed and you feel bad about it, or sin that's been committed against you. Okay? Now, I want to say something real quick as far as this is concerned. Literally in the world, you've got two, two different types of people, two different groups of people. You've got people that love God, they serve God, they love God through Jesus, they're Christians. They, they follow God's way of life through Christ. And then you've got other people that aren't Christians. They don't follow God. They don't follow after God. Now, what I want to say about both groups of people 
is that everybody suffers. All right? Everybody suffers. People that love God, people that don't love God. All right? I think this is important to understand because sometimes people say, I don't want to go to God because I have a hard time thinking that God is sort of going to cause problems. Hey, look, the reality is, is it doesn't matter who you are, everybody in this world will find themselves at some point state uh, of trouble, of anguish, of hardship, of mourning. But the difference is this. Okay, here's the difference. Those who know God, those who trust in God, like Jesus says, the blessed are those who mourn, are those who also recognize that justice, righteousness, God is coming. Why? Because Jesus just said it. Good news, guys. God's coming. And that gives them a sense of hope to hold on. Endurance. If you feel yourself troubled and crushed, it actually allows you to hold on that much longer to realize if God, since God is coming, since God will rescue one day, I can hold on. That's what Jesus says. Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. But the flip side is this. Those who don't know God and those who suffer, because they have no hope of any type of future comfort, they live in this mentality that says something like this. Because I have no hope of any future comfort, I've got to take myself out of suffering and mourning and put myself into a place of comfort now. And how do we do that? How do people do that? People do that in so many different ways. Some people do it. They just go shop and shop, spend money until they don't have any more money, and then they've got new problems. Some people do it through drugs. Some people do it through false religious mentality. Some people do it through sexual activity. All of these are attempts to some way, shape, or form to remove yourself out of mourning and hardship and difficulty, to appease it, to soften it, to, to round the edges of it, to kind of to numb it a little bit. But the reality is, is what happens is, let's say if you turn as your sort of drug of choice to sexual activity as the means of comforting the sorrow of your soul, you begin to realize what happens is now you feel defiled. Now you feel filthy. Now you recognize that something in your heart's not right. You're broken. You feel disgusted with yourself. You feel angry. And now you've just created a whole new set of problems for yourself. And it's because it's the cycle. We mourn, and yet we try to find comfort that's here right now. And Jesus says those who have hope in the kingdom, God's authority, God's power, God's presence here and now, and which will one day be consummated in the kingdom to come, you will be comforted. You will be comforted. That's amazing. I want you to feel that. There's a passage in the book of Revelation this in chapter 18. It's talking about this whole system, this world system called Babylon. It says, and Babylon has fallen, that great city. Here's what it says. And people will weep and mourn because Babylon has fallen. It, and here's what the last little phrase of that. It says, and they will never be comforted. 
So in the book of Revelation, you sort of have, the, has a, have this uh, juxtaposition. You've got those who trust in the system, this world, because in the midst of their mourning and hardship and difficulty, they put their hope in Babylon. They put their hope in something that cannot sustain them. But one day, the bottom will fall out. One day, Babylon will fall. One day, the drugs will let you down. One day, you will wake up and you will begin to realize how did I get myself in this spot? And there'll be no comfort. But the book of Revelation ends with this amazing passage, and it says, those who trust in the Lamb, who trust in Christ, who look to God, His authority, His power, it says, every tear from their eye, and they'll be comforted. That's amazing. That's what Jesus is talking about. That those who trust and hope in Him, though they mourn, they'll be comforted. The next one is this. He says, By blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Uh, the word meek um, is kind of an ambiguous term. It's a little bit hard. It's one of those words that we don't really use all that much in our modern day society. Um, but I, what I want to try to do is, is maybe point out what it's not. Um, meekness is sort of the opposite of being rough or having a bad temper or somebody that's like very prideful or arrogant or always pushing themselves forward. The person who's meek is somebody that is not, that's not about self-promotion. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't promote things or if they've got energy, they don't use their energy to promote themselves. They use their energy to help other people. So here's an example of this. In the book of, in the Old Testament book of the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse uh, 9, there's this uh, prophecy that actually gets picked up in, in the New Testament. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. It says, Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal of a donkey. So here's the point. That word that's used there, humble, when it gets sort of translated into the New Testament language, it's also the same word, meek. It's the idea. So what's happened is this king... He comes into the city of Jerusalem, is on the back of a donkey, and it says that he's meek. So we know the fulfillment of this passage is Jesus. He comes into Jerusalem. We sang the song today, Hosanna, which really is the idea, save now. Jesus, you're here. Save us now. Start the revolution. Let it begin. Let it, let's get going with this thing. And what's happening is Jesus is coming. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Right? The righteous judge. Is he promoting himself? Is he pushing forward himself? No, what's he doing? He's using all of his energy. All of his might. This is where it gets absolutely phenomenal. Where he uses all of his strength, all of his power, not to fight, not to promote himself, even though he's worthy of it. But he does all of this with all of his might for the purpose of saving those that don't deserve it, the broken, the down and out, those who are abused and ashamed, who need help, like you and I. That's what Jesus does. He himself is meek. And he's calling us, as a part of this lifestyle in him, to not live in a way that always promotes ourselves, but rather uses our might, uses our strength, uses our energy. For the cause of the gospel. To proclaim the kingdom. That God's here. 
There's a new revolution. There's a new way to live. There's a better way to live. You don't have to live according to the default mode which leads to the fires of hell and the judgment of God. Jesus has come. And that's why it's so great, guys, for us to use the energy that God's given us to consider how can we use this. And we've talked about this a lot. Our church is a church that for some reason God is just... He's taking people, people come here, they come to love Jesus, and they want to go somewhere. They want to do something for God, whether it be a band going out and playing around the United States, whatever it is, or whether it be somebody who's just like, you know what, I want to go down to Guatemala, I want to go down to Brazil, and I just want to tell people about Christ, or I want to go start an orphanage. We had dinner this past week with a couple in our church that came up a couple weeks ago, and they shared a little bit about moving to Tibet. It was just amazing. I mean, they're, they're a family. They've got, they got two kids. And sometimes people are like, you know, they get this little... Middle age, life, they got little kids who are like, I don't even have time to like read my Bible. You know, I understand. I've had kids myself. I mean, I still have kids. But, I mean, the reality is I, I know what it's like. But it boils down to decisions that we make on our behalf of are we going to use the energy that we have to promote the kingdom of God, which has come to help, to save, to set liberty to the captive to break the chains of bondage, to help those people that are oppressed, not just simply to give them food or clothing, but bigger than that, definitely involving that, but greater than that, bringing them into communion with the living God through Jesus. That's what Jesus does. He's on mission to use his might and his power not to promote himself the first time, but to seek and save those who are needy being sought and saved. The last one is this. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Really, I think in a, in a nutshell, what he's trying to say is those who have this idea, the longing that one day God's righteousness would come, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But he uses this phrase, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's kind of a in some ways, kind of an obsolete phrase in our culture. I mean, when was the last time we, like, we really were starving, right? And I'm not talking about, you know, going, like, three hours without food. You're like, man, I'm starving, you know? I'm talking, like, going days. And while you're going days without food, you look in the cupboard, and all you have is, like, maybe a little bit of flour. It's got weevils in it. You're like, hmm, the extra protein or no protein? What do I do? You know, and like, I don't know what to do. I mean, even if you, you live in that culture and you have a crop and everybody else is starving, you know who gets the first choice at your crop? The king, the ruler, the leader of the land, not you. So people were very prone to knowing what it meant to feel pangs of hunger. And Jesus uses that same phrase, and he says, Blessed are you who hunger you long for, you thirst for God's righteousness, rightness, all right? Rightness to come. Things to be made right, that wrongs would be overturned. I'm not just talking about wrongs in the world. I mean, everybody can sit back and look at the television and watch the news, point fingers, be like, everything that's wrong in this world is Matt Lauer. Sorry, it's not Matt Lauer, guys. It's not. It's not. He just reports about what's wrong. What I'm trying to say is this, is until we come face to face with the reality that the wrong is not out there, it's in here. 
then we will never understand the full scope of the kingdom that's come to save now, here, with God's power. That's what God wants to do, is save us from that default mode of fallen creation, which is very myopic and sinful, aside from the fact is it turns everything of God's good intentions on its head and brings about not only God's just judgment, but the penalty of wrath to come. And the message of the gospel is this, that God comes through his messenger, Jesus, son of God, and he says, I come bearing good news. Those of you that recognize the weight of your sin, the weight of the sin in your culture, the weight of the sin that's not just out there destroying everybody you know and love, but destroying yourself because it's in here. He's come to set you free. That's good news. That's really, really good news. But it begins by just first of all recognizing I'm bankrupt. I need Christ. I need God. The point, finish with this. Yeah, the worship team come on up. And while those guys are coming up, I want to finish with this thought. The point and the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is not to be a new list of laws and rules for you to somehow try to enact. All right, the purpose of this is not for you to read this and be like, okay, great, I'm going to go try and just do it. I think if you try that, you'll begin to realize really quickly you just can't. All right, you'll realize, I can't do this. I'm going to fail. Because the point of the matter is this, is that really Jesus himself does everything that he communicates. Jesus is meek. Right? Jesus is merciful. Jesus is all these things that we read about and everything that's going to come out. He's basically going to say that this is not about you somehow trying to fulfill this. I want to, I want to finish with this little quote that I read um, a couple days ago. And I really I felt it sort of summarized well what's happening here. Um, the law is everything that God commands. Okay, the law, the big picture of God's Old Testament covenant law. The law is everything that God commands. Grace is everything that God gives. All right, God gives. So if you take the Sermon on the Mount, you're like, okay, I'll just try to be meek, whatever that is. You're basically turning it into a law. You're saying, if I can just do this, it'll all work out. It won't work out because sooner or later you'll begin to realize, I can't do this. Or what will happen is that you will take certain aspects of that law and look at yourself and think, eh, I'm doing a great job. All right? I'm doing a great job. I don't do drugs, therefore I'm doing a great job. And you begin to look at like certain scenes, we categorize certain things like all about morality, and we begin to realize maybe I'm better than everybody else. And now you've got the worst sin of all because you're prideful. Okay? But until we come to realize that really what's happening here is law is everything that God commands, grace is everything that God gives, and what God gives in the gospel is everything that he demands in the law. So let me try to embody this for you. Jesus comes, he preaches this amazing sermon on the mount, and really the sermon is all about him. He's basically saying, I'm everything I'm telling you about. And if you come to the realization, you just don't have it in you because you're poor in spirit, you're bankrupt, and you come to him, cry out, say, Lord, save me, help me, what you find is in Christ, who fulfills the law, you begin to now become free to live these things out. 
for the first time in your life, you actually become free to do this, to live like this. Rather than promoting yourself, you use your energy and your might to help other people, to promote the gospel, the kingdom of God. That's the way this works. It's meant to drive us back to Jesus. This is why we not only need Jesus, but why we love Jesus. Because Paul, in trying to form a theology about this, he says something like this. In you, who are once far off from God, who are in your sin and in your death, and you are by nature children of wrath, have been made to be brought near. For you are, he uses this phrase, in Christ. So now, the miracle of the gospel is this. Those who trust God's means of salvation, which is Jesus, not only have the past washed, forgiven, flushed out, made clean, but now for the first time in your life, you're actually free to live like your Father in heaven, who is the embodiment of righteousness. Stop trying to live the Christian life. Jesus already did. Trust Him. Look to Him. Then you'll live the Christian life. Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the cross. Thank You for Your power. I ask You right now, Father, that as we respond to You, as we sing to You, as we give our tithes and our offerings to You, You'd receive our praise. God, if there's anybody here right now that is just feeling the weight of sin that they've committed or sin that's been committed against them, and now because sins that have been committed against them, they feel angry and bitterness is there, and it's killing them. Lord, I ask you that the gospel of the kingdom that's proclaimed is here and now, as well as to come, would set them free. Would set them free. Free from the flames of fire, of hell. Free from your judgment. Free from just simple defilement. Free to love. Free to honor you. Free to love others. Free to use their power and their might to stop being selfish and self-centered. But to help other people. The gospel frees us. God, I pray that you set us free now. Power of Jesus. God, as we worship you, we give you our song, ties, offerings, everything, God, we just lay it at your feet. We say thank you for the cross.
Jesus, we need you every step of this life. Lord, we can't do this alone. Lord, we cannot love without you. Lord, we cannot have patience without you. We can't show grace to people without you. We cannot live this life without you, Lord. We need you. Cross you are. 
through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God, to that, to that, Lord, we just say, so be it. Let it be done. Let it be done. Let your kingdom come in power and authority and might and justice, but merciful, full of love. Let it change us first, God, and help us to be a blessing, to be like a light, 
set upon a hilltop or like salt to this earth which preserves to make an impact. God, that's the type of church we want to be. People that are impacted and go out and make an impact. Help us to do that, we pray. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Hey, we hope to see you tonight at uh, 4.30. And uh, listen, if, if you can't, if you think I can't come because I don't know how to cook, just come anyways. All right? We just want you to come. If we run out of food, we run out of food. We'll still have some good time. We won't run out of food, though. We'll have a great time. See you guys at 4.30.